Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we're going to discuss Al-Mutawakkil's religious policies and examine the impact they had on the state and its constituents. There's disagreement on whether he was motivated by faith or politics, but either way, the Caliph upended the status quo. Even as he brought an end to his brother's unpopular inquisition, Al-Mutawakkil aggressively imposed a different set of beliefs on the Ummah, oppressing ideological opponents and religious minorities with fervor. His heavy-handed interventions deepened religious divides and roughly demarcated what would come to be known as Orthodox or Sunni Islam. Despite the harm he inflicted on other communities, Al-Mutawakkil's support of the traditionalists went on to earn him a stellar reputation. Episode 66, Sunni Side Up A long, long time ago, the Caliphate's first successful dynast, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, declared that he would kill the next guy who beseeched him to act in accordance with Sunnat al-Rasul, or the ways of the Prophet. With this shocking proclamation, the exasperated Caliph was trying to redefine the role he had won in the second fitna. He wanted to make it clear that the caliphate's political authority had nothing to do with religion. That's not to say that it didn't have an impact on the ummah's relationship with the faith. It's worth noting that another title for caliph was Amir al-Mu'minin, or commander of the faithful. The Umayyad state's abuse of the Hashemites, its treatment of non-Muslims and non-Arab converts, even the caliphate's mere existence shaped the world in which Islam was practiced. But despite these unavoidable points of contact, Abdul Malik's delineation of the two realms stuck. Of all his Umayyad successors, only the famously pious Umar ibn Abdul Aziz used the Qur'an and Sunnah as a guide for statecraft. On their path to primacy, the Abbasids weaponized religion when they attacked their predecessors as indulgent and neglectful Muslims, and strategically hid behind the spiritual credentials of their own Hashemite ancestry. While this hinted that their rule would be more pious, it was only part of their sales pitch to the faithful, and in reality, they weren't very different from the Umayyads. Many modern commentaries on early Arab history disagree with me here, and I acknowledge that there are some contrasts between the two dynasties. We've discussed this before. The Umayyad Caliphate was dominated by the Arabs and its caliphs were more like tribal leaders, while the Abbasid state was a Muslim empire that presented its caliphs as divinely ordained to guide the Ummah. One point that gets repeatedly trotted out was that the Abbasids shortened the title from Khalifat Rasulullah, successor to God's prophet, to Khalifatullah, God's successor, as a way of underlining the chosenness of the caliph. To me, these distinctions are just part of the branding. 
as caliphs, the Abbasids, and Umayyads both kept Islam at arm's length. Harun al-Rashid did issue a couple religious edicts, but it's not until al-Ma'mun that we find a caliph trying to use his political authority to influence the Ummah's beliefs. His backing of the Mu'tazilite position in the 830s marked the first time the state openly took sides in a purely doctrinal matter. What started out as a simple preference for like-minded judges evolved into a full-blown inquisition over the course of the next two decades. The Mu'tazilites were favored throughout al-Mu'tasim and al-Wathiq's reigns, and thus became strongly associated with their Turkish regimes. Some commentaries point to this fact to explain why al-Mutawakkil made them his first ideological victims. Others say the caliph simply held deeply conservative religious views, an opinion supported by his punishment of various groups besides the Mu'tazilites as well. We'll start with the Mu'tazilites, then move on to the Hashemites, and end with the caliphate's largest community of all, non-Muslims. Let's recap what we've already covered about the Inquisition. We know the Mahna started in the last years of al-Ma'mun's reign, 831 or 832, and that the point of contention was about whether the Qur'an was created or eternal. His successor, al-Mu'tasim, had other priorities, so he didn't really pursue the Inquisition during his reign, but he maintained the state's support for the rationalist school. Most narrations attribute this enduring sponsorship to the influence of Ahmad ibn Abi Du'ad, the chief judge whose opinion was highly regarded by the caliph and later his son. Al-Wathiq's reign witnessed a sharp intensification of the Mahna. It was no longer restricted to judges, but extended to soldiers, scholars, and preachers. Severe punishments were meted out to those who resisted Mu'tazilite doctrine, and any public opposition was swiftly suppressed. Even at its most draconian, the Mahna was still pretty benign. I'm not trying to be an apologist for anything here. Dozens, maybe hundreds, were imprisoned, tortured, or put to death during Al-Wathiq's reign, and that is indefensible. But calling it an inquisition is overstating things a little. There was no state drive to stamp out nor impose any religious beliefs. The interference only manifested in punishing those who called the Mu'tazilites heretics or impugned the correctness of their beliefs. Besides, Mu'tazilism wasn't an alien doctrine, it was well within the bounds of Sunni or mainstream Islam. I found a helpful map online that mentions the main events of the Mahna. I'll post it on the show's website. Anyone who's interested can check it out at thecaliphs.com. Of all the ummah, only the strictest traditionalists, those who insisted on an unadulterated application of the Prophet's ways in all things, refused to comply, and they raged against the perils of Mu'tazilism. The two we hear about the most are Ahmad ibn Hanbal, a firebrand religious scholar who was repeatedly detained and tortured by the state, and Al-Khuza'i, who was arrested for agitating against the Mu'tazilites and executed by Al-Wathiq for his beliefs. I'm going to have to interrupt our flow with a quick correction here. I'd said that Al-Khuza'i was put to death for telling the caliph that he believed in a corporeal god. 
but there was more to his story than that. He was a descendant of some of the earliest supporters of the Abbasid Dawah, and Al-Khuzai used all his connections to orchestrate a coup in Baghdad. It was badly planned and discovered by the city's guards, who arrested him and forwarded him to Samarra. Al-Khuzai said he wanted to overthrow the caliph because of his association with the Turks and Mu'tazilites. His interrogation at court eventually turned to his personal beliefs, and that's when the caliph ordered his execution. I somehow left this out of the episode we had on Al-Wathiq, so I'm glad I got a chance to set the record straight. Although most people didn't resist the state's turn towards Mu'tazilism, there does seem to have been an undercurrent of contempt for the official doctrine, at least in certain parts of the Ummah. We find narrations describing the Baghdadis as disdainful of it, for example, but no good explanation for why that was. Anti-Mu'tazilite accounts make it sound like the doctrine was an obvious heresy, but that people were too scared to openly object to it. Pro-Mu'tazilite narrations call their opponents reckless demagogues prepared to shamelessly inflame religious tensions for social clout. What makes the most sense to me is that the people had come to associate the Mu'tazilites with the Turks. Since no other avenues of expression were available to them, supporting the traditionalists was a way of venting their frustrations about the growing distance between them and their government. In 849, two years into his reign, Al-Mutawakkil put an unequivocal end to the Inquisition. He issued a decree banning any discussion of the Qur'an's status. Just like that, the mehna was over, but the caliph was only getting started. He invited traditionalist religious scholars to his court and extolled them as the best teachers of Islam. The writing was on the wall, but it was another couple years before the caliph replaced his Mu'tazilite chief justice, the son of Ibn Abi Du'ad, with a traditionalist named Yahya ibn Aktham. Yahya had actually been the chief judge back in Al-Ma'mun's days, reminding us that the caliph who catches the most flack for starting the Inquisition had never even put a Mu'tazilite in charge. It didn't take long for Yahya to fire and replace most of the judges empowered by his predecessors. Some of the more notorious partisans were arrested, but only Ahmad ibn Abi Du'ad and his son died in custody. From that point on, the traditionalists had al-Mutawakkil's full support. He ordered that al-Khuzai's corpse be returned to his family for a proper burial. The caliph released any ideological prisoners still in custody and even assigned one of them as high judge of Egypt. Then there's all the unverifiable claims we find about Ahmad ibn Hanbal. This unrelenting champion of strict traditionalism founded one of the four legal schools accepted in Sunni Islam today, so the material we find on him is subject to distortion from his status as a towering authority in Islamic jurisprudence. Some narrations say the caliph admired Ibn Hanbal and asked him to serve as a royal tutor to his children, but that the incorruptible scholar was too wary of politics to accept a position at court. Contradicting these are accounts claiming that Al-Mutawakkil and Ibn Hanbal kept a secret correspondence through which the scholar had a strong influence on state policy. 
There are more versions between these two extremes, but my point is that it is difficult to speak with much certainty about religion-adjacent figures like this one. While we can't be sure what Ahmad ibn Hanbal was up to during al-Mutawakkil's reign, we know he won his crusade against the Mu'tazilites. By the time he passed away in the mid-850s, his followers in Baghdad had been so emboldened that they went through the city house by house, rounding up and punishing opponents as they pleased. Even al-Tabari was a victim of their vigilantism. He never considered Hanbalism a valid legal school, and so earned the ire of its adherents. A mob of its more extreme followers disrupted his funeral and mistreated his corpse, though others feebly dispute this by saying that he was successfully buried in secret. But let's turn our attention back to the caliph. By favoring the traditionalists, al-Mutawakkil upended decades of state policy. Several narrations expressed their approval by describing him as a pious Muslim who was acting in defense of the faith. Although the caliph lived well beyond the bounds of orthodoxy, it is nonetheless a predictable reaction to find in our sources. In reality, al-Mutawakkil wasn't particularly observant, and his reputation for piety is rooted entirely in his championing of the traditionalists, which more often than not manifested in the persecution of other communities. The Mu'tazilites may have endured the most precipitous fall from grace, but others fared much worse during al-Mutawakkil's fanatical reign. While it's not a competition, the Hashemites were probably the group that was squeezed the hardest. Having suffered state persecution for literal centuries, the clan had finally caught a break during the reigns of al-Ma'mun, al-Mu'tasim, and al-Wathiq. This can be attributed to the influence of the Mu'tazilites who were sympathetic to the Hashemite cause, one of the things al-Ma'mun liked about them back in the day. Well, al-Mutawakkil was nothing like his uncle. On the contrary, he seems to have harbored a special hatred for the Hashemites. Honestly, there wasn't much of the clan left to abuse, and we haven't heard of any sizable Hashemite rebellions for a while now. The only semblance of leadership the Hashemites still had came from a line of eminent religious scholars who had only survived the tyranny of the caliphs by staying far away from politics. Their reputation for godliness didn't hurt either, and their devotees referred to them as imams, a title of religious respect. Al-Mutawakkil ordered Ali al-Hadi, the 20-year-old imam of his time, to move to Samarra, where he lived the rest of his life under watch. His son, Hassan, was born in the military capital and thus came to be known as Hassan al-Askari, or military Hassan. Al-Mutawakkil withheld any stipends the state paid to the clan and confiscated some of their lands. The caliph then criminalized all forms of support for the Prophet's descendants. Sympathizers were purged from the state and repressive policies were adopted to actively attack them. For example, Al-Mutawakkil reinstated the cursing of Ali bin Abi Talib at mosques throughout the caliphate, a practice defunct since the overthrow of the Umayyads. Those who traded with Hashemites or their supporters were considered outlaws and were exiled from their communities, either into detention or destitution. While all these examples are already pretty nasty, 
the caliph's worst assault on the community didn't come for another couple of years. In 851, Al-Mutawakkil ordered that the tomb of Al-Husayn, grandson of the Prophet, be raised in Karbala. The shrine had a special meaning to supporters of the Hashemites, who commemorated the massacre of the clan in 680 AD there every year. That tragedy had come to define their community, and the imam's resting place in Karbala was the only monument dedicated to it. Al-Mutawakkil had the whole block demolished, plowed, and left fallow, announcing painful sentences for anyone who tried visiting with religious intent. We hear that the move was unpopular with most Muslims, but some found it downright profane. So far, I haven't had any issues casting Hashemite supporters as political partisans, but this caliph treated them like heretics, and it led to a tangible divide between them and the rest of the Ummah. While I always hesitate to delve into religious topics, Al-Mutawakkil leaves me no choice. So let's quickly revisit Islam's main schism, the one between the Orthodox Sunnah and the Hashemite Shia. We'll start with definitions. A Hashemite was anyone with direct descent from the Prophet. This could only be through his daughter Fatima and her sons from Ali bin Abi Talib, Al-Hasan and Al-Husayn. A Hashemite supporter was anyone who thought a Hashemite ought to wield political power. A Shiite was someone who believed that supreme legitimacy was inherently unique to the Hashemites, particularly the descendants of Al-Husayn, the imams of their age. This was an idea first articulated by the sixth imam, Ja'far al-Sadiq, between the years 740 and 760. His large following had split multiple times since his passing, so the Shia weren't a monolith, but that's a subject we'll have to revisit another time. My point for now is that not every Hashemite supporter was a Shiite. If one did not believe that the Prophet's progeny were religiously exceptional, then they were still mainstream Muslims. Al-Mutawakkil's rigid interpretation of orthodoxy excluded whole swaths of the Ummah, though. Many of those punished for associating with Hashemite supporters had no option but to join their ranks down the line. It's an intentionally provocative thought, but one could say that the two fathers of Shi'ism were Ja'far al-Sadiq and al-Mutawakkil. The first gave them something to believe in, and the other excommunicated them from the rest of the Ummah. The caliph's policies had hurt the community in various ways, but his destruction of the tomb of Al-Husayn in Karbala went further. It was a trauma that defined them as a community. Although many Muslims were upset by it, anyone who found the desecration to be sacrilegious felt deeply alienated from the majority. By excluding the Shia in this way, Al-Mutawakkil's policies circumscribed what would come to be known as Sunnah, or Muslim orthodoxy. The only group we have left for discussion are non-Muslims. While the following also applies to Jews and probably even Zoroastrians, Al-Mutawakkil's primary victims here were Christians. They still made up a majority in several important provinces, including Greater Syria and Egypt. As with the Hashemites, 
This treatment contrasted sharply to the Mu'tazilite stance on minorities. The rationalist school held the adherents of other Abrahamic faiths in high regard and had not discriminated against them. The caliph shared none of those sympathies, and in 850 he issued a devastating and ridiculous decree. I kind of want to translate the whole thing, but it's a little long-winded. We'll ease our way into the list by starting with the merely insulting stuff. Minorities, i.e. Christians, now had all sorts of regulations about their appearance in public, from the color of their garments to the number of buttons and allowable accessories. At first, their saddles had to be made of wood so they couldn't gallop comfortably. Then they were restricted to riding only donkeys and mules. Then we have the destructive edicts. All newly built churches were to be torn down. Poll taxes were to be collected from each non-Muslim's residence. And if it were found to be immodestly large, it was to be seized and turned into a mosque which meant non-Muslims could no longer live in its vicinity. All minorities employed by the government were to be let go and replaced by Muslims. Christian children couldn't enroll in Muslim schools, nor could their adults instruct Muslim children. They weren't allowed to display the cross on holidays. They weren't allowed to light a fire in public. Their graves all had to be leveled so they wouldn't resemble Muslim graves. Finally, and most absurdly, non-Muslims had to hang a wooden image of a demon on the doors of their homes. This oppression led to great discontent among minorities, but it is only the Christian reaction that we find discussed in our sources. As they still lived within their own self-governing communities, they had the capacity to react to al-Mutawakkil's burdensome new restrictions. We only hear about two rebellions by Christians in Homs in 854 and 855, both of which were brutally put down by the Caliphate's armies. After that, there is no evidence of further resistance put up by the oppressed minorities of the Caliphate. Some narrations are quick to shield the Caliph from any accusations of fanaticism, and they say he was only trying to revive the Sunnah as Harun al-Rashid and Omar ibn Abdul Aziz had done before him. While it's true that both caliphs issued some religious edicts against Christians, they fell way short of what al-Mutawakkil was up to, and their restrictions obviously failed because they hadn't stuck. Like with all these other religious changes, I think the caliph was motivated by his own uncompromising take on Islam and a proclivity for dishing out pain. While it's somewhat out of place, I figure I should take this opportunity to say a few words about the Sufis. After all, we are on the topic of religion, and this episode is running a little short. Roughly speaking, Sufis believe that the Qur'an informs one about the existence of God, but that connecting with the divine requires an intensely personal quest. The believer had to find an awakened master and follow their guidance until they achieved enlightenment. This often involved leading the austere life of a hermit or a mendicant. Nothing was supposed to stand in the way of this pursuit of a closer union with God, neither government nor religion. The Ummah found it hard to classify Sufism, especially since it was stuck in the Sunnah-Shia dichotomy. 
Since Sufis didn't acknowledge the Imams as supreme religious authorities, some Shia regarded them as an offshoot of Sunni Islam. However, strict Sunnis were uncomfortable with how the Sufi relationship between master and student was modeled on the one between the Prophet and Ali bin Abi Talib, something they considered a sign of latent Shiism. Since most didn't know what to make of Sufism, the commentary we find on this Gnostic strain of Islamic mysticism is pretty confused. Some say Al-Mutawakkil regarded the Sufis as heretics, but there isn't enough material to confirm this. Other accounts say the Caliph was floored by the holiness of Dhul-Nun, the preeminent Sufi of his time, but those narrations seem to be more concerned with praising the saint than the Caliph. Due to its essentially anti-establishment angle, Sufism flourished in the hinterlands of the Caliphate, where its practitioners were safe from hostile crowds and zealous caliphs. With this, we've reached our last stop for the day. Why Al-Mutawakkil did what he did. I'll admit that it's not exactly a consequential detail, but we said we were going to take our time with this caliph to try and understand the man he was. It is an especially muddled subject because it touches on the religious, a topic that seems to invariably distort the oral material we find in our sources. When it comes to al-Mutawakkil's motivations, there are plenty of accounts that describe him as a pious Muslim who was only interested in fulfilling his responsibility towards God. We could choose to accept these at face value, but let's see if we can rustle up any alternative takes. Another common explanation we find is that Al-Mutawakkil's doctrinal shift was politically motivated, that he wanted to weaken the existing bureaucracy and win the support of a different part of society. While I acknowledge the logic behind this, I remain unconvinced. The move did make him popular, but in his hyper-centralized caliphate, popular support counted for nothing. Real power was firmly in the hands of the Turks and their victorious armies. Taking out the Mu'tazilites didn't do anything to undermine the military. It didn't really hurt anyone in the state besides judges. So if al-Mutawakkil's behavior was the result of political calculus, he must have been really bad at math. Whatever the extravagant caliph's deeply held religious beliefs were, he clearly wanted to be seen as championing the strictest traditionalism. To al-Mutawakkil, that meant oppressing everyone else, and that's exactly what he did, paying no heed to whatever consequences might ensue. He was also trying to maximize the power of his office and minimize the role of the Turks, a struggle that defined his reign. I think this is another one of those why-not-both situations. While our sources regularly understand political quarrels in religious terms, we should resist that impulse and correct for it. The religious stuff was not necessarily tied to the struggle against the Turks. If it helped in some instances, then great, but it was probably not the point. If al-Mutawakkil figured that attacking the Mu'tazilites would weaken the Turkish grip on power because they subscribed to the doctrine, then it simply didn't pine out that way. Al-Mutawakkil's reign can be misunderstood as that of an Islamic supremacist in charge of the state. Considering the many groups he persecuted, that can be a difficult characterization to escape. The truth was that by abolishing his predecessor's policies, 
the caliph had stumbled upon a whole new way for the caliphate to use religion. The earliest leaders of the ummah stayed away from matters of faith so as not to invite questions about their own legitimacy. During the reigns of the last three caliphs, the state had begun to show a preference for one school over others, a process that was slowly leading to the emergence of an official doctrine. As it progressed, that project met with growing resistance from the Ummah, and Al-Mutawakkil's about-face was celebrated as a victory for the faithful. By oppressing the enemies of orthodoxy, the caliph earned popular support as a defender of the faith. Successive governments took note of this development, and they regularly adopted religiously conservative stances to bolster their own legitimacy and shield themselves from criticism. The persecution of minorities sadly became a fixture for tyrannical regimes, who found it to be a handy tool for justifying their brutal grip on power, giving way to an unholy alliance between government and religion. Having covered his ascendance to the throne, his foreign wars, and now his internal policies, we are almost done with Al-Mutawakkil's long and multifaceted reign. His persecution of the caliphate's various minority groups was a dark time for the Ummah. It may be celebrated in our sources, but it was extremely detrimental in the long run. Shockingly, though, it wasn't the caliph's most disastrous act of policymaking. To hear more about that, join me next time for a discussion of his succession arrangement, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. <laughs>